Great, good morning everyone, hope you enjoyed that. Uh, 11 years ago today we sort of launched it formally, Acts 435. I was unable to attend because I had labyrinthitis and was in bed, so missed it, but uh, the trustees were there and John Sentimere, who is our patron, who championed it from the very beginning. And as Caleb uh, explained, we, I did a sermon on God's heart for the poor, which different churches might or might not be showing this morning, uh, and we just thought it would be, I have tweaked it for gateway use, uh, because um, you know me and you don't need a whole background on who I am at the beginning. But we just thought it'd be good, particularly off the back of the Sense series, actually, just to really focus on God's heart for the poor. So my privilege today is to share with you, as we explore God's heart for the poor, and the implications of what that might mean for us in practical terms. Let me just fiddle with this. So, what is God's heart for the poor? Let's start in the book of Exodus, where we first of all see that compassion and mercy are a fundamental part of God's character. Exodus 22, verse 27 says, When they cry out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. God is compassionate, so it's no surprise that then compassion and mercy are built into the Jewish law that was given to Moses, based both on God's compassionate character, but on also what he's done for his people. See, for example, Exodus 23, verse 9. Do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners, because you were foreigners in Egypt. So the people have had an experience of what it means to be in need. In this case, foreigners in slavery in Egypt. In the Jewish law, we see incredible attention and provision given to ensure that the poor are provided for, and in a way that upholds their dignity. They're provided for, but it upholds their dignity at the same time. Look at Ruth and Naomi, for example. They were widows without financial provision, and Ruth a foreigner, yet they could still glean from the fields. Uh, you may remember the story if you know the book. And they were allowed to do so because of some verses here in Leviticus. So Leviticus 19, verses 9 to 10 says, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. That was why Ruth was able to go. And in a way of dignity, without having to beg, she was able to go and gather these bits that had been left because it was set out in the Jewish law. Not only was provision made for orphans and widows, loans were interest-free, and every seven years, debts were cancelled. And in the Jubilee, which was to be marked every 50th year, lands restored. Now, there's no evidence to say if this ever happened, but I think you'd agree that God's plan is clear. And, and it's set out in Deuteronomy 15, verse 11. He says, There will always be poor people in the land. Isn't that interesting? I'm just going to pause there. You know, often we talk about Jesus saying, uh, you know, when the woman comes with the perfume, and he says, There'll always be poor people. But it's here as well in the Old Testament. God says there will always be poor people in the land. So, okay, we just accept that? No. What does he say next? Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor 
and needy in your land. I love that picture. Open-handed. Share. Give. Be open with what you have. We also see the flip side of this in the prophets with a clear link between how God's people treat the poor and how God interacts with them. Amos uh, Amos 2 verses 6 to 7 is a good example of this. Judgment on Israel, it's called, is the subtitle. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. So in Israel's farming economy, the potential poor were identified and provided for. Things are less clear-cut today. In fact, I want to invite you to think back to that verse I've just read and reflect back on it in the light of 21st century poverty. Selling the innocent for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals, trampling on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and denied justice to the oppressed. The reality is, in a globalised world, there can be things we do here that has that impact at someone in a developing world country somewhere. And it really is a difficult one to grapple with. Um, But it's there, isn't it? God's heart is that this will not happen, that the heads of the poor will certainly not be trampled on, but that we will be open-handed towards them. Jesus comes and starts his ministry quoting Isaiah, which I uh, shared about a few weeks ago, and says it's the year of the Lord's favour, and the Jews would have recognised those echoes back to the Jubilee. All debts of sin would be cancelled as we've been celebrating this morning. But Jesus also shows in action his love and care for the poor, the poor and the marginalised. He feels a compassion, splank nidzmai, you may remember from a few years ago, that, that comes from the gut, a compassion that just starts here. He feels it for the leper in Mark 1.41, the large crowd in Matthew 14.14, the widow in Luke 7.13. He exhorts us to be compassionate as your father is compassionate. And he teaches what caring for the needy looks like in the timeless parable of the Good Samaritan, but also the somber portrayal of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, where it is those who fed the hungry, clothed the naked, visited the sick, that will inherit the kingdom of God. So then when the early church begins fascinatingly narrated in the book of Acts, we see a concern for the poor and needy is a natural outworking of their community. That's what they did. As you look in the, in the narrative of Acts, but also in some of the letters, collections are gathered to help the poor. And of course, our whole strap line for Acts um, 435 comes from that early church, bringing things together and giving to those in need. So there's a concern within the community, within each individual church community, and towards all, as evidenced throughout church history. We are known for it, aren't we? The Christians are known throughout history for their care for the poor, a genuine love for a neighbour, a relationship with them. Boris Johnson even referenced in his Easter message, the Good Samaritan. It is there, it is a characteristic that remains a very strong part of our faith. And it's characterized by compassion towards those in need. Now, I've recently finished this gigantic book here. 
uh, called Philanthropy. Uh, it traces the history of philanthropy. It's a secular book, but unsurprisingly, it spends considerable amount of time looking at the Jewish approach to giving, and then the Christian, both Catholic and Protestant, through almsgiving, monasteries, parish support, many different things that have happened over the ages. But what the book is at pains to draw out is the distance that has developed over time between the giver and the receiver. We've moved from a simple giving of support to anyone in need to a distinction between deserving and undeserving poor. Accompanied by a rise of emotions in the mix of all that, there's a fear of the poor uh, sometimes, and certainly in the past in this book, when people started to move around and homeless people became homeless, there was a fear of the poor coming up. There's also this sort of sense of a need that they need to be educated or improved as part of or perhaps even before receiving support. I don't see those distinctions in the Bible. I don't see that being open-handed. That's why I love our strapline at Acts 435, giving to anyone in need. When the early church gathered those resources to distribute, you didn't have to fall into a particular category. They didn't distribute them to give to any orphan or widow in need or any person with a disability or any particular category. Nor did they exclude anyone, oh, but not a beggar or not someone who's just come out of prison. They simply gave to anyone in need. God created us all differently with different gifts and passions. In my book, there are interviews with different people, philanthropists mostly, and it's Fascinating to see the different things that they are drawn to, whether that be Lord Sainsbury, who has funded a number of scientific research projects that were too risky for a government to consider doing. Or John Studinsky, who's a Roman Catholic investment banker. His interests are in preventing human trafficking, modern slavery, and homelessness. Interestingly, he also volunteers in The Passage, which is a Catholic homeless project in London, and does that on a continual basis throughout. Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury, is asked about the comparison between giving £200 to dig a well in a developing country where there's no water, clean, clean water and £200 to help a local hospice. He asks the question, well, if everyone gives to the well, what happens to the hospice? It's actually a good thing that charitable giving can be a bit chaotic, was his sense. It's important that some people do act on their immediate affinities and networks and natural sympathies. But let's remember God's heart for the poor. It's interesting when you look at some of the detail of what some big philanthropists have given to, they've actually increased inequality. They've widened the gap between the rich and the poor. You see, giving to an educational establishment is charitable giving, but it turns out that half of philanthropist giving to education in the UK went to Oxford or Cambridge, and that's the kind of way that you can see the gap being widened. I want to argue that the Bible is clear where our focus should be for the poor, is the way that we give of our time, making a difference there. We're invited to give cheerfully and not under compulsion. We've been talking about that a lot recently with giving to the Windows Project. And this is great news. We can approach giving with a real lightness of spirit and a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit prompting us. 
But that second aspect is critical. Do we take time to tune into God and hear the still, small voice that prompts us to give? And do we actively engage with those we help? We may write a check, set up a standing order, and perhaps not give it another thought. But the verse, it's more blessed to give than receive, I think really comes into its own when we connect with those we are helping. That may mean taking time to read an update that a charity has sent through about what they're doing with your funds, or taking time to pray for them in their endeavors. It could mean coming alongside those in need of help and spending time with them, learning from them, and giving of your still skills and experience too, perhaps. It will be different for each person and in each season of life. But I can guarantee that time spent shoulder to shoulder with those on the margins leave their mark. Years ago, when at university, I volunteered at a homeless night shelter and saw my prejudices deeply challenged. I did the classic gap year thing of going overseas on a short-term mission project to help build a school in a poor part of the Dominican Republic and marveled at the stamina and dedication of the local people I met. God used that time to change me and fill me with his passion and plans. As I said, I believe he gives each of us unique gifting and passions. John Stadinsky, uh, the, the Roman Catholic investment banker, says we have, he talks about six T's. Time, talent, treasure, ties, by which he means your kind of networks, trust, and technology. Something we've all had to focus on more uh, at this time. But I particularly want to hone in on those first three. Time, talent and treasure, treasure obviously referring to our money, as we invest some of those in helping those who in some way or another need support, we reflect the generous God in whose image we are made. God gives of himself and we are called to do the same. I would suggest we have a clear biblical mandate to care for the poor. The letter from James, which we looked at last year, is perhaps the most frank in what that might look like in practice. Not an easy read. Woe to those who boast in their arrogant schemes, who hoard wealth and who exploit others. A challenge not to favour the rich person who comes into your church gathering whilst excluding the poor. And another not to send someone away with words of comfort whilst not attending to their physical needs. James 2, verses 15 to 16 says, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Are we willing to feel uncomfortable as we love our neighbour? Are we willing to step out and show sacrificial love to those in need? Do we see those in need as a project to be helped, or genuinely a people to come alongside. Mother Teresa said, it's not about how much you do, but how much love you put into what you do that counts. I love that. It's not about how much you do, but how much love you put into what you do that counts. I've been executive director of Acts 435 now for 10 years, and it has been such a privilege. Over the years, I've come to appreciate how Acts 45 provides not only for the final recipients of that washing machine or school uniform or train fare, but how much further it goes in facilitating God's call 
to love our neighbour and to help those in need. First of all, our incredible network of church and charity advocates, of which Derek is our one here at Gateway. They are the Mother Teresas. They're on the ground, coming alongside people in need, listening to them, identifying where there is a need, and offering Acts 435 as a solution. It's a joy to be able to say to them, no longer do you need to figure out whether your own church or charity has the budget to help. Partner with Acts 435, and you have access to our crowdfunding website. In this way, those of us who are not shoulder-to-shoulder with people in need can still help in a direct way. Our donors partner with the advocates through giving, and it really is transformational. We love the fact that every donor is drawn to someone different, as compassion rises up in them on reading a person's story on our website. In turn, that person is moved by the fact a stranger cares about their situation, and it has such an impact on their self-esteem. I want to share a recent story about a guy whose flat flooded and he needed help with furniture that has really touched our team. You see, actually, it's not about the cooker or the bed or the debt relief order fee. It's about love and seeing that impact. When one of our London advocates first met this gentleman, let's call him Gary, as a food bank client, he was surviving as best he could in his flat, with little money, unable to get a job due to his physical and mental disabilities. He felt isolated, neglected, unnoticed, uncared for, and discriminated against by locals due to his disabilities. The food bank did what they could for him and signpost him with the offer of support to agencies they were aware of that could offer help. But he felt such a write-off that he didn't actively engage with them. Then his flat flooded and he was moved out. This seemed to be a game-changer. He was so overwhelmed that he spent a whole food bank session pouring out his fears and stresses to the team and admitted to praying to something or someone. When the advocate offered to put in a standard request for £150 to help towards costs and explain what Acts 435 was all about, he was speechless, and his very words at the time were, what? People I don't know care about my situation and me. We were actually able to help him with a special larger grant, but even when he thought he would only receive £150, his demeanour changed. And the advocate shared that she's seen him round and about several times since his first application. He's engaging with everyone at the food bank in a way he never did. And he's no longer phased by the fact that the volunteers change from week to week. In fact, he's asking how everyone is. The advocate said to us, thank you so much for changing this man's attitude by caring. And who knows, if he feels the need to pray again, he will know who he's praying to. We have countless stories like that and so many different ones beside. We've had some great ones recently of paying it forward. So someone who's been helped by Axe has then wanted to help in return. One guy set up his business and every time he makes a placement, he gives a small donation to Axe 435. Someone else has started volunteering with a baby group at the charity that helped her as a way of giving back, investing time, talent, treasures. For Acts 435, whether a donor or an advocate, both are tangible, practical ways to fulfill our mandate to love our neighbour and both enable us to show God's love in action. The food bank network, which of course we run from here too, 
Christians Against Poverty, and many other organizations besides. Whether you are the one, like Jackie, who is meeting with people, guiding them through a repayment plan, or you are financially supporting people so they can do it, we are all partnering together in showing this love. And as we rejoice together with Jackie, with this man who's now gone debt-free, we are making sure there is that connection between giver and receiver. As I was preparing, I just felt God's prompting as we think about how God is asking us to share our time, our talent, our treasure. What really matters is what God's saying to you. Reading through this book, sometimes some of the problems that have gone along the way is when someone comes along with a load of money and says, this is what I want to do to the charity, rather than saying to the charity, what needs doing? You, charity, are on the front line. You know the situation. We've even had a little bit of experience of this uh, for Acts 435. Someone said, well, I could really get behind it if you did it this way. It's a funny sort of dynamic for some charities, especially some of these big philanthropists in the States. It's a huge temptation to take the money and do all that could be done with it, except it's not quite what they would have done. And I just think there's a bit of a challenge there for us, that what is God's heart for you? What is God's heart for me? Where is God prompting us to invest our time, our talents, our treasure in this particular season? Let me just pray. Lord God, we want to thank you for all that you give us. We want to thank you that you are a generous, giving God, uh, that we do have so many of these T's, time and talent and treasure. We have the ties of being part of this wonderful church. Lord God, I just pray that you would guide us and prompt us and show us we can't do everything, but Lord, would you show us where we are to invest our time, our talents, our treasure, and just remember the poor. Amen.